Amen. Thank you, Molly. About two years ago or so, when we first moved into our new house, uh, we decided to put down new flooring in the kitchen and in the living room, or not the living room per se, it was the living room, the uh, dining room had carpet and we wanted to put new flooring down. And so one of the first things I had to do when I was going to put this new flooring down is I had to strip away the old flooring. And so the kids helped me and I tore up the carpet out of the dining room area and then had to go around with a little screwdriver and pry up all the little staples out of the board. And then then I had to go into the kitchen and, and take out, they had this laminate kind of particle board, looks like wood flooring, but it's not really wood, it's made out of something, I don't know. But they had that down and I had to take that up. And then I had to take up some laminate flooring that they had down. It was actually, or linoleum, excuse me, linoleum. You know, the old, like, it's kind of yellow and it's got cool pattern on it. That had all been, like, glued and, and, and stapled and nailed down to a thin sheet of plywood. So I had to take a crowbar and just get that all up. Before I could lay down this new flooring, I had to strip everything down to the subfloor. Because if I just tried to lay this new flooring over the existing stuff in the kitchen, like they had done with the linoleum, it wouldn't turn out very well. Or if I tried to lay it over the carpet, it wouldn't sit well. It would bulge and buckle and things like that. And as temperatures changed, the flooring would give way and it would be a disaster. I had to strip the floor down to the subfloor. And I think that's an appropriate metaphor for what God is doing through his judgment to Jonah in this text. He's stripping down Jonah's pretensions, Jonah's Jonah's desire to run from the Lord, to hide from the Lord, for the sake of getting down to the bottom of things so that God might show his mercy to Jonah. See, last week we talked about from this text, we saw that rebels run from God because rebels don't want anything to do with the God who might expose them. And yet God chases after rebels. God runs after rebels. And we saw last week that God always gets his man. God always catches rebels because he doesn't really actually run like you and I run. He's already there. There's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of the Lord. Jonah was trying, but he found very quickly he could not escape. And we said that God runs after these rebels and finds them. And this is good news to you and I because God runs to show mercy. But what I want us to see through this text today is that God runs to show mercy, but that doesn't preclude his judgment. That doesn't mean the opposite of God showing judgment towards Jonah and towards the sailors. That God's judgment is actually his merciful judgment. See, God running after Jonah to show mercy to him looks more like me stripping down to the subfloor than it does like me just laying new flooring over. God doesn't just lay the mercy on top of Jonah. He actually strips him down to the base of who he is so that he sees that his only option is to cry out to Yahweh for mercy and to turn to him in repentance. And so that the sailors, God also brings through this process, the sailors to the same point where they see that their only choice is the mercy of God. And he does that through judgment. I think sometimes... When we think of judgment, we think of something that is menacing or severe or spiteful even. And we think that it's only a bad thing. And then we think of mercy, we think of something that that is tender and kind and loving. And somehow judgment and mercy 
cannot be in the same sentence. You're either judging or you're merciful. And we think of God as either primarily a judge who's running after us, chasing us, and going to get us and punish us. Or we think of God as primarily merciful, who's like, like a grandfather that wants to kind of welcome us in and spoil us. Neither one of these pictures are true of what God is like. And in, here in Jonah, we see a picture of how his mercy and his judgment come together. That's why the title of the sermon this morning is Merciful Judgment. Because what we're going to see is that God brings rebels to repentance through this merciful judgment. God is running after these rebels who are running away from him for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. And the way he's doing that is through judgment, which is merciful. Through his merciful judgment. When I speak of judgment this morning, I also want to clarify. I'm talking specifically about acts of God. Things that he does for the sake of punishing wickedness that are meant, aimed at, showing who he is to the world. That are, that are meant to teach people to know that he is the true God. Okay? God acts in judgment. We see this all through the scriptures, particularly in Exodus. How God acts and interacts with the armies of Pharaoh and how God interacts with his people, even in numbers, are meant to punish wickedness to show that he is truly God and that they ought to turn to him. The goal is to get people to see that he is God and to turn to him because there is the path of life. And that is merciful of God. So that's what I want us to see this morning, that God brings these rebels to repentance through merciful judgment. And I want to look at how that works. In verses 4 to 13, we see that God's judgment exposes rebels. That's what I mean by the kind of stripping down to the subfloor idea. God's judgment exposes rebels or exposes our rebellion. I want to see how that works. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Think about where things were at before that happened. God had called Jonah. Jonah had gone to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and had gone down into the ship and was just hanging out, right? The ship was sailing along fine. Everything was hunky-dory. What started all of the things we see in this story is verse 4. God hurling a wind onto the sea. God hurling his judgment against this ship that has Jonah and these sailors in it. Judgment is starting this whole process in this story. And I want to see how that judgment then peels back these layers. Verses 4 to 6, we see first of all that the judgment of God exposes among these sailors a fear of death which exposes a false worship, right? They worship idols. They call out to their gods. In these sailors, God's judgment exposes the falsehood of their gods. And in Jonah, God's judgment exposes his hatred of his neighbor. Look in verse 5. When God's judgment comes upon them, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. As this storm rages, as God's judgment rages around them in the ship, they cry out to their gods. Why do they cry out to their gods? Why does anybody cry out to a god? It's for salvation, right? For, to rescue you. They are afraid. What did they fear? 
drowning, death, right? They see the storm coming in and threatening to break up their ship. And out of their fear, they cry out to the one they think is going to save them. In this time period, it would have been all kinds of different gods in the Roman pantheon of gods. They would have been crying out to whatever idol they worshipped. Probably usually associated with wherever they were from or whatever their family had worshipped. Definitely not crying out to the God that created the heavens and the earth and the sea, right? These are, these, are, these are sailors crying out in false worship, and God is exposing that. God mercifully doesn't let these sailors think that the idols that they're crying out to are going to rescue them. Notice, God doesn't remove the tempest because these sailors cry out to their false gods, right? Imagine what would have happened if they would have cried out to their gods and God himself would have been like, you know, these sailors are really scared and I don't, I don't want to scare them that bad. And so we're going to calm the seas down. What would they have concluded? Oh, Dagon is the right God to worship, right? God doesn't allow them to do that. Praise the Lord. It is merciful. He's stripping away the fact that these sailors worship false gods. But notice in verse 6, not only that, but he's stripping away the fact that Jonah is failing one of the fundamental commands of God to his people which is to love your neighbor, right? Jonah, when all of these people are trying to figure out whatever they can do to save themselves, what does Jonah do? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's trying to ignore God, trying to run away from him, and he's sleeping down in the belly of the ship. What ought to Jonah have been doing? What should God's people do in the midst of God pouring out his judgment on the world? Intercede, right? Cry out to God. They know the true God to cry out to. Jonah knew, as we see later in the story, what was really happening, right? And yet Jonah was ignoring the whole thing. He was failing to love his neighbor. The consequence of failure to love your neighbor, the consequence of any sin we know is death. It leads to death, right? And God mercifully does not allow Jonah to sit in the midst of his hatred of neighbor. But what does God do? He sends this captain down in verse 6, right? To say, arise. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. At this point, the sailor's just thinking, we got to get everybody on their boat. Someone might have the right God. Because what the sailors are thinking, which we don't usually think that way these days because we have a very kind of secular, naturalistic worldview. If a storm comes up on the sea, we don't conclude there must be a God that's angry at us. But these people concluded that there must be a God that's angry at us because that's how they would explain a mighty storm coming upon the sea. And so these sailors are like, Jonah, why aren't you doing your part? Why aren't you at least minimally crying out to one of the pagan gods of your family to help us? And Jonah instead God reveals through this judgment that he has a hatred of his neighbor, a failure to love his neighbor. This is the first layer that God is starting to peel away. Then we see in verses 7 to 10, God peeling away another layer. It wasn't just that these sailors were worshiping false gods. It wasn't just that they were idolaters, but it was that they were ignorant of the one true and living God. They don't know this God that Jonah worships, and they try to discern what's bringing this on us. Why did this evil come upon us? In verse 7 it says, right, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. It's really interesting that they cast lots. That might seem strange to us, but in the ancient world that was a common way of trying to discern what the gods are saying. 
Even in Israel, God's people, that was one of the allowable ways for God's people to determine the will of God by casting lots, by putting the decision before the Lord and doing something like drawing straws, spinning a dreidel, that kind of thing. Some way of trying to discern through random chance, like a dice roll, of what God's will was. We know from Proverbs 16 that the dice falls into the lap and rolls where it will, but every decision is from the Lord. God had told his people that I will reveal myself to you this way. So these sailors use kind of an Israelite way to try to determine which God have we upset? What's going on? They're ignorant of the one true and living God. This leads them, though, verse 8, this leads them to question Jonah because the lot falls on Jonah. Think about this for a minute. Why did the lot fall on Jonah? Was it just bad luck? Every, every fall of the dice depends on the sovereignty of God. God himself was pointing out Jonah, not allowing him to hide. So these sailors questioned him. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? These seem like a, a strange series of questions maybe to us, but what they're really asking is who is your God? They're trying to discern who Jonah worships because the lot falling on Jonah to them says Jonah has somehow upset his God. And we need to figure out who that God is and we need to figure out how to appease him. Think about this. God doing this this way. God exposing Jonah this way. He's dealing with the sailors ignorance, right? Because they ask who 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 is your God? And what does Jonah reply? I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. If you have an ESV, the Lord is probably all caps. I think the NIV probably is too. That's a a way of indicating that this is talking about Yahweh. This is not just Lord generally, but this is talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jonah is saying, I fear Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, the creator of everything. He is, because of the judgment of God brought on him, ending up evangelizing these sailors. When his whole point was to try to hide from this mission of preaching the gospel to the nations. His whole point was not to go to Nineveh and not to preach the gospel to those who are not part of Israel. And yet here he is preaching the name of Yahweh to sailors because they are ignorant and God in his merciful judgment is not allowing them to remain ignorant. Not only that though, God is exposing in the process the shallowness of Jonah's faith. God is exposing in the process the shallowness of Jonah's faith. Think about his confession in verse 8. Right? He says, excuse me, verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew. The point of the Hebrew people is revealed in Genesis 12 when God calls them together as a people under Abraham. What does he tell Abraham? He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Why? So that those who bless you may be blessed and those who curse you may be cursed. And through you may all the nations of the earth be blessed. This means that every single Hebrew, their mission in life was to be obedient to Yahweh, to follow him so that they might be a blessing to the nations. And what is Jonah doing? He's disobeying Yahweh 
And out of that disobedience, curse is flowing to the nations. In other words, these sailors are in deadly peril because of the disobedience of one of God's people. Jonah may say, I am a Hebrew. But is he acting like a Hebrew? No. God is revealing that through this judgment. That Jonah, though he claims to be a Hebrew, and though he technically is, is certainly not living out the reality of his identity. Not only that, but think about the second part of his confession. I fear Yahweh. Really, Jonah? Like, does that strike anybody else as odd? That Jonah would be, would be running from the Lord and fleeing in a ship bound the other direction from what the Lord told him to go and then trying to sleep through the storm that the Lord hurls on him in judgment? And he says, I fear Yahweh. Yeah, maybe. You know, it doesn't seem like it, right? He, he confesses the right thing. It is right for a Hebrew For one of God's people to say, I fear Yahweh. But his actions show that that's not really, that doesn't really have depth to him. He's not acting in a way that fears Yahweh. And God is exposing through his judgment that though Jonah would say, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, his confession is very shallow. His confession is not lining up with how he's living. God is exposing the hypocrisy in Jonah. As God does this, as God peels back these layers, he's also doing something else. As God peels back these layers in judgment, he's also slowly building the faith of this pagan people. Notice in verse 10, after they hear this, that Jonah is a Hebrew and that he fears Yahweh, and that this Yahweh is God of heaven who made the sea and dry land, then in verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. So Jonah obviously tells them more about his story. And their response to the whole thing is, what on earth are you doing? They exceedingly fear because they know that they are in the boat stuck with the guy who's got the wrath of God kind of peering down at him, coming for him. They fear judgment. Rightly so, because they recognize that the God of all creation ought to be obeyed and that here is one of his servants that is disobeying. And they know that judgment is coming upon them. They move from just a general fear to this fear of judgment. Notice in verse 5, right? When the storm comes upon them and they don't really know what's going on, they're crying out to their gods. And it says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid. There's an intentional building of their fear as they see this judgment of God unfolding and starting to peel back these layers and reveal all of this sin and rebellion, their fear increases. And it's going to keep going that way. We'll see in a minute. The next part, after they recognize that somehow there's a God who has been offended and it's the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, They ask this question in verse 11. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? How do we make it right with this God? Notice, this is a pagan people going to a prophet of God and asking, how can we be made right with God? It doesn't get much richer than that as an opportunity for the the gospel to be proclaimed. The, The saving hope that God brings his people to be proclaimed. They're asking for this. And this is, the, this is kind of getting down now to the subfloor of what's going on here in their hearts. This third layer here in verses 11 to 13 reveals 
two things. It reveals a need for atonement. And it reveals how often human beings try to fight for salvation for themselves. Notice Jonah's answer to them. Like, what should we do? He said, they say. Verse 12, he says to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I know about you guys, that seems like a weird answer to me. It seems weird because Jonah is saying, you need to take me and throw me into the sea to make God happy. When Jonah could just jump in himself, right? It would be fine. It also seems weird to me because God is not typically the kind of God who demands human sacrifice, right? Like, like Jonah knows this. Jonah knows that it, it seems like it would be sufficient for Jonah to repent, right? And to turn to the Lord and that the Lord would relent from disaster. He does it for Nineveh later in this story. So that's certainly not out. We don't know a lot about Jonah's motivation here or what he was thinking because the text just doesn't tell us. But what we do know from the rest of Scripture, particularly from Matthew, Jesus tells these Pharisees that you demand a sign, but I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I will be in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He connects himself to Jonah. And so we know that God gave us this story as a way to point to the ultimate story, Jesus Christ, right? We know then that Jonah is meant to be a type of Jesus Christ. And I think what's happening here is that Jonah recognizes that as one of God's prophets, as, a, as, as one of God's people even, Israel themselves were called to do this. He is called to lay down his life for the sake of the nations, for the sake of bringing God's blessing and bringing the truth of the gospel to the nations. Israel was called to be a people who looked not to their own interests, but who were called to be a people who proclaimed the excellencies of Yahweh to the nations, even at great personal cost. So remember, Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh, which is like preaching the gospel in the middle of North Korea right now. You probably won't last long, right? It's a call in a sense Probably not literally, but at least figuratively to die, right? It's a call to die for the sake of others. And Jonah is starting to get this, I think. And that's why he recognizes that I have brought this sin upon you because of my sin, or I brought this evil upon you because of my sin. And therefore, it ought to be me that sacrifices myself for the sake of you. I think Jonah is starting to get this. And I think his self-sacrifice, his, his call to cast me into the sea so that you will be saved is meant to point us to what Jesus actually does. You see, Jonah ran from this call and Israel ran from this call. Jesus didn't run from this call, right? Jesus didn't run from the call to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. This is pointing to a sacrifice that was made thousands of years later that did actually remove the wrath of God from people, did actually save them. And God here mercifully points to that through Jonah. So Jonah is saying, cast me into the sea. Jonah is pointing to this need for 
atonement for things to be made right because of his sin. The sailors respond, no, this, this seems too high a price. They respond, maybe we can make it to shore. Verse 13, notice. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah holds out to them the promise of life through a substitutionary death. And what do the sailors do? They say, the cost is too high. We can do it ourselves. And they row and they row and they row. God could have let them reach land, right? God could have let them reach land and allowed Jonah to get off the boat and them to get off the boat. And maybe Jonah would have repented and then headed to Nineveh and all those kind of things. But he doesn't. He mercifully does not allow the sailors to escape his judgment on their own power. He forces these sailors to rely instead on a substitutionary sacrifice for the sake of receiving mercy. God mercifully does not allow these sailors to escape. He points to substitution as the only way. What we see in these, in these verses is that God's judgment all the way through is peeling back these layers and exposing the sin and rebellion of Jonah. And it's pointing to then, because it exposes sin and rebellion, it's pointing to a need for some way to take care of that. For some way to make Jonah right with God and not liable to eternal judgment. It's pointing to the need for atonement as judgment peels back the layers to expose sin and rebellion. It points to a need for atonement. And as God's judgment in the hearts of on these sailors peels back these false hopes shows them that no matter how much you cast out of the boat you can't make it light enough that it won't sink no matter how hard you row you can't escape the storm of judgment no matter how many false gods you cry out to none of them will rescue you as god's judgment shows the futility of those hopes peeling back the layers it points to the need for someone who actually can save that's what's happening here that's what god's judgment is doing that's how It works to expose rebellion and sin and point to what's actually needed. God's judgment does the same for us as well, friends. We live in a world that is experiencing Romans 1 type judgment. Forsaking the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Just like these pagan sailors were. It's different ways, but it's the same kind of thing. And we live in a world that is just like these pagan sailors trying to throw whatever we can at the problem, trying to solve it, trying to cry out to whatever God. We don't cry out to gods of statues these days, but we cry out to the God of medical care. We cry out to the God of social security or our own retirement savings. We cry out to the God of family. Whatever God the world is crying out to, they're ignorant of the one true and living God. And as God brings this judgment and brings heartache into the world, we are in danger of finding ourselves like Jonah, sleeping at the bottom of the boat. We're in danger of finding ourselves like Jonah with a a shallow confession of faith. That when the world comes and asks us, we say, yeah, we're, we're the people of God. We're the church. And we worship the one true and living God who sent his son to die for you. But we act in no way that resembles that. We sleep instead of seeking the good of our neighbor or we act hypocritically against our confession god's judgment on us and on the world reveals these things 
And it's a merciful act because it's an opportunity to seek him for mercy. See, our rebellion is not all that judgment reveals. That's not all that God's judgment reveals in this text either. It's peeling back the layers over and over and over to get at the heart of things, which is in verse 14 to 17. God's judgment reveals not just rebels. It doesn't just expose rebels, but God's judgment reveals mercy. God's judgment reveals mercy. Notice, first of all, that this is a ship full of idol worshipers and a rebellious prophet. God would have been completely just just to bring a giant wave and crash right into the ship and wipe the whole thing out, right? Like, God is merciful for, first of all, bringing a storm against the ship that didn't destroy it immediately. It's not because God was, like, revving up the waves. God could have just wiped it out. He doesn't. He doesn't. He shows mercy initially, and then he uses this judgment to peel back the layers all the way until verse 14, where we see a very remarkable thing. Verse 14, Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice it's all caps. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. A group of pagans who were just a minute ago calling out to false gods, seeking to rescue themselves by whatever means necessary, is now not only praying to the true and living God, but is even fearing him exceedingly, which is what Israel's supposed to do, is even making sacrifices to him, making vows to him. And it's not while the storm is still raging, because notice, as soon as they throw Jonah in, the sea calms down. It's after and in response to God's mercy that these former pagans are now crying out to the one true and living God. God has shown them mercy. And in response to that mercy, they learn to fear the Lord. God's judgment revealed his mercy to these sailors and brought them to repentance. At least the beginnings of repentance. We don't know if these sailors continued to worship Yahweh. If they became Israelites, they, they proselytized to Israel. We don't know what else happened to them. This is the last where they show up in the story. But we know that they cried out to God. He was merciful to them. And that in response to that mercy, they called on his name. That's at least the beginning of turning from sin and turning to trust in God. Not only for these sailors, though, God shows mercy to Jonah. Jonah may have been still trying to escape the call to Nineveh. Later, he says it's better for him to die than for the enemies of God to be shown mercy. And so he may be thinking, well, hurl me into the sea. It'll, it'll save you guys. That's probably good. And it'll avoid me having to go to Nineveh. Right? Like, I'll just drown. That'll be the end of it. That was Jonah's kind of attitude. And God mercifully does not allow Jonah to drown. What does he do in verse 17? The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're going to talk more about Jonah's time in the fish next week. And so we'll talk more about the great fish 
and all of that when we do. But I want you to see how merciful of God that is to Jonah. That even though he was rebelling and running and even may have been trying to run by having someone else murder him. God was merciful and didn't allow it. And brings him into the belly of the fish. And in that belly, Jonah has an encounter with the Lord. And it changes his heart. He repents. He turns from his sin to trust in God. These are just the beginning stages of this kind of repentance. But notice how quick God is to show mercy. The sailors cry out to God. Obey. And God doesn't say, well, make sure when you get home, you destroy your pagan idols. And that you make sacrifices at the temple. And then you go see, see one of the uh, rabbis and talk to them. God immediately calms the storm. God immediately shows mercy. Because as we saw last week, he does not afflict from his heart. His judgment is not opposed to his mercy. His judgment is merciful. Because it's meant to reveal his mercy. We see that in this text this morning. There's a two-fold application I want us to think about this morning. There's certainly more things we could see in here and more we could say, but I want us to think about two particular things. If it's true, and I believe it is, and I believe we see it here in Jonah, that God brings rebels to repentance through his merciful judgment. That includes you and I. And the first application that I want us to think about this morning is for you and I to learn not to despise the judgment of the Lord. Or not to despise, we might say, the discipline of the Lord. See, we have a hard time thinking of the word judgment in terms of Christians. And so, we'll use discipline, that's okay. Hebrews uses that too. But I want you to think about that. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. See, we see that God runs to show mercy, and that that includes his judgment. Part of God's running to show mercy to even believers like you and I is the fact that when we rebel against God and sin, our sin has consequences, right? We think of them as natural consequences, right? If, if, you, if you go and you decide to drain your family's bank accounts and then go gamble it all the way and you lose all of it, that has consequences right that's like a natural consequence yeah it was dumb and you did it and it's sin and it has consequences and we and we don't always connect those consequences with god's work in our lives right we think of those as just kind of effects of a stupid choice rather than the providential hand of god bringing judgment on us because of sin because we think and rightly so that there is forgiveness in god through Christ Jesus. And we tend not to think then of judgment falling on believers. But God still brings on us the consequences of our sin. Natural consequences in this earth. To help teach us to turn to him. That's what we see in here. Jonah was a Hebrew. Under the, the people of Yahweh. Who could have made sacrifices at the temple. And had these sins taken off of him. Right? But God still brought this judgment upon him. To teach him to turn to his mercy. This happens to us when we experience the natural consequences of sin. This is how it worked for Israel. Think about God's people Israel. Over and over rebelling against him. And, and then turning to him. And God often pulled back his hand then. 
and didn't bring on them the consequences of their sins. Many times, you and I sin against God and don't experience the direct consequences of our sin, right? God is gracious. God is, treats us tenderly. Praise the Lord. Other times, because of God's good plan for you and I, he will not remove the consequence of the sin. When Israel rebelled against God eventually, just like we read in Zechariah, as they hardened their hearts and as they stopped up their ears, eventually he said, you're going to call out to me and I'm not going to answer. Eventually he allowed them to experience the consequence of their sin. Eventually he sent them into exile because of their sin. This wasn't because God had turned away from mercy to them. This was because God was accomplishing his mercy through judgment to the people of Israel, causing them to turn back to him, bringing rebels to repentance through merciful judgment. This is what God was doing in the exile to Israel. God does this in Acts. We see in Acts 9, Paul, good Pharisee, good Jew, thinks he's serving the Lord, breathing threats and murder against these people that are blaspheming God by following this man named Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus. What does God do? God, in Jesus Christ, appears to him and strikes him blind, brings judgment on Paul as a result of his sin and rebellion against God, even though he didn't know it, to wake him up, to to capture him and to say, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responds, I don't don't know you. What are you talking about? Who am I persecuting, Lord? Who are you? And reveals, I'm Jesus. And then he goes to Damascus. And eventually he's prayed for and the scales fall off his eyes and he can see again. But he experiences this kind of judgment to lead him to repentance. Right? It's not... Judgment and then mercy. It's merciful judgment that's leading Paul to repentance. It was merciful for Jesus not to just strike Paul dead on the road to Damascus. God will back rebels like you and I into a corner to rescue us. It doesn't feel merciful to us. It feels judgmental because we don't like it. It hurts. Right? Just like cleaning out a wound hurts. But it's good for you. It hurts to have this kind of merciful judgment set upon us, but it is ultimately for the purpose of revealing God's mercy. So do not despise the discipline of the Lord. I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, which I believe talks about this. Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11. Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord reproves the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, I believe that we can substitute in there. All the times it says discipline, I believe we can substitute in there the judgment of God. It is true that the judgment of God functions that way in you and I. As we are brought under judgment because of sin and rebellion, God mercifully does not allow us to go our own way. Just like the prodigal son was not allowed. He went to the end and then when all options were exhausted, he's brought back, right? To show mercy to us. So do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Secondly, and relatively briefly, behold the wisdom of God. Behold the wisdom of God. The sailors confess rightly in verse 14, God does what pleases him, right? They say, don't hold us accountable, Lord, for throwing this prophet of yours into the ocean because you do what pleases you. God does what pleases him and it pleases him to pursue rebels like you and I with merciful judgment. God accomplishes his saving purposes for rebels through his judgment. And what we see in Jonah is he does it actually for the nations as well. The whole reason that these pagan sailors learn about who Yahweh is and cry out to him. Why do they do that? Because Jonah was there. And why was Jonah there? Because he was rebelling against the Lord. Jonah's rebellion led directly to the rescuing of the nations. Why did Israel go into exile? Because they rebelled against the Lord. What happened in exile? Guys like Daniel brought up, got brought up in the Babylonian court. And pretty soon Nebuchadnezzar writes a missive throughout the whole land that says, God is the one you must worship. Yahweh alone, he is God. All because of Israel's rebellion. You see, the amazing thing and why we ought to behold the wisdom of God is that in the wisdom of God, God who does what he pleases takes rebellious people and even uses their rebellion for the sake of reaching the nations. We ought not respond like we know from Paul in Romans 6. Do not sin that grace may abound. That doesn't mean go and be rebels so that God will use you. Right? Instead, it means behold the wisdom of God. It is amazing that God takes rebels like Jonah and Israel and you and I, and even in judgment, uses us as missionaries. That is incredible. That's what is amazing about this text. And it's consistent with the whole scope of Scripture and how God brings judgment and mercy together for the sake of his name. He ultimately does it at the cross, right? Where at the cross, the judgment that Christ experienced reveals the sinfulness, the depth of rebellion of humankind, that that's what it took to bring us back. And at the cross, the cross itself reveals the mercy of God in the midst of that judgment, that he took what ought to be on us and laid it on his son. And that he did not allow his son to remain in the grave, but raised him up and with us raises him, uh, raises us up with him. This is the wisdom of God. This is what the cross is all about. And our response to all of this ought to be with Paul in Romans 11. So I'll leave you with this. Respond to this message in this morning in Jonah and in light of the cross as Paul does. Romans eleven thirty three. 
Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. They are so far above. Your wisdom stretches to the heavens. Stretches to the deeps of the earth. We praise you. Because you have shown us definitively in Jesus that your judgment is merciful. That you do not pursue us as a God who is bent on punishment. That you do not afflict from your heart. But that you afflict for our good. For the sake of your great name. So we praise you and we ask that as we move into your table that you would leave that ringing in our ears and that we would reflect on the magnitude of your merciful judgment and that our hearts would be full of thankfulness and joy. Amen.